Hey, how many of you remember the last time you were in a station wagon? Remember the last time? Was, was is this a fond memory that you have uh, when you think back of it? Let's, let's be more specific. When was the last time you were in the rear of a station wagon, the third row rear of the station wagon? Uh, and some of you are giggling and laughing like... Uh, Let's, let's pause for a moment because we actually have to be reminded uh, our church is a multi-generational church. Uh, maybe you're watching from home. Maybe you're in the room here now. And there are some of you sitting in the pews here right now. You're nodding and smiling and yet you have no idea uh, what I'm talking about. Uh, you have no idea what a station wagon is. Uh, friends, they don't know what a battle wagon is. They don't know what a bragging wagon, a chuck wagon, a covered wagon, a dragon wagon, a fuzz box, a fuzz bucket, the family trucker, a grocery getter, or a goofy granny is. They don't know what that is. Uh, they don't know uh, that they've never ridden in the American dream. They've never ridden in the family trucker, uh, the changing station, the cruising cabin, the rusty trombone, the Oregon fail, the lagging wagon, the mini wagon, the cruising cabin, the swagon wagon, the wagon wheel, and of course, the woody wagon. Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you tracking with me yet? So if you didn't know, if you're here this morning, or if you're at home, kids, you're watching from home, and you still have no idea what I'm talking about, a station wagon is one of the earliest design vehicles that was actually designed for a family uh, when they were going to the train station so that they'd be able to take all of their luggage and all of their supplies back and forth to the train station. That's where the name comes from. It has three rows of seats, which isn't so unusual, but particularly with a station wagon, the third row of seats is facing the rear, which is wonderful if you're a little kid. It's, it's also got this one particular unique design to it, and that's uh, the older brother or sister torment button, button. And that button is the handle, the button on the handle on the outside of the vehicle that the older brother or the sister does not have to hit and does not have to open the door when you're cooking inside of the car and they won't let you out of the vehicle. Do you know what I'm talking about yet? Uh, the, the, the station wagon, for me, I have a particularly uh, fond memory of the station wagon when I ask you about that because this time of the year when the leaves were changing color, I went in a station wagon. We didn't have one, but my pastor at our church had one, and he uh, piled us all in. There was a, a number of uh, uh, vehicles from the church that went to Letchworth State Park to see the leaves change, and we were all piled in, and I was in the back of that vehicle with my buddies facing the rear, watching the leaves kind of blow back and forth wandering uh, through the country roads. That's just a fond memory for me. When I think of station wagon, that's uh, kind of what I think of. It's a very happy memory. Now, some of you, when you think of the granny mobile, you're not thinking of a fond memory because you're thinking of being 17 years old, you're six and a half feet tall, and you're jammed into the back of that third row because uh, mom is feeding the baby, allegedly, and she needs that baby close to her, and you're jammed in the back. And so all of us have pulled up behind that vehicle where the 17-year-old is in the back seat. He's got his arms folded. He's got a scowl on his face and just wants to let you know. He mean mugs everybody who drives by to let them know he hates this experience. And some of you remember that, and some of you have back pains and a migraine just thinking about being in the vehicle at that point. Uh, we're in a sermon series this morning called 
uh, the new normal. I'm going to try to make a transition from that to the new normal. The, uh, some of you are going through some back pains and some discomfort with the way things are right now. And this is kind of, the, and we're looking at things and we're going, is this the way it's supposed to be? Like this idea of the new normal, like of all the discomfort that we're experiencing, does it have to be this way? Is this the way that it's supposed to be? You're worn down, you're weary, and you're uh, worried and worn out. And at the end of the day, is this the way uh, we're supposed to live our lives? And so uh, I'm using this analogy, and you'll see where it's going in just a minute. Uh, but this, this sermon series is coming from Matthew chapter 3 and 4. You don't have to open there this morning because the unique thing about Matthew chapter 3 and 4 is it's chock-a-block full of Old Testament cross-references. And so actually we're going to the Old Testament cross-reference this morning uh, to be able to learn a few things. Uh, the author Matthew builds the case uh, that, that Jesus is just like the Old Testament character Moses, that Jesus is very similar to Moses, and he goes even further that, that not only is that the case, but that Moses is actually the foreshadowing of Jesus. This is one of the arguments that Matthew is making in his gospel. And so what, that in mind, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a beautiful piece of, piece of poetry, uh, the first song ever written in Scripture in Exodus chapter 15 by Moses. So if you're tracking along with us this morning, get your Bibles out. If you've got it here in the room, get your Bibles out. I'll be in the New International Version if you're watching from home. Uh, New International Version, we're going to spend most of our time this morning in Exodus chapter 15. And with this, we're going to learn some of the essential characteristics of what true worship looks like. Because next week, we're going to go back to the book of Matthew. We're going we're to see Jesus, and he's going to be in the desert, in the wilderness, and then Satan is going to tempt him and is going to say, look at all that is before you. You can have it if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus responds by quoting uh, the scriptures of Moses and saying, you shall worship the Lord your God, and only him will you serve. But there's a whole basis behind that theology that Moses has built, and we're going to see that here in Exodus chapter 15. This triumphant song comes after crossing the Red Sea on dry land. Here's where my analogy comes in. So, so uh, Moses has got the station wagon, and he's got the nose of the station wagon aimed into the desert, into the wilderness. And guess who's in the way, way back? Two to three million children. Uh, this is not going to turn out well, right? And so uh, let, let's dig in. Let's see what happens. So this morning, would you stand? You can put your mask on if you're in the room here. If you're at home, we're going to read through Exodus chapter 15 together here of Moses and the song of Moses. Stand up with me here. Exodus chapter 15. Let's read together. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both the horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. 
The enemies boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. But you blew your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So who is among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working in wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them by the power of your arm. They will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, until the people you have bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands have established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. Praise be to God. May the the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you, friends. So here we are. We are on the right side of the Red Sea. The right side of the Red Sea. What do I mean by that? The Israelites have safely reached the shore. So, so we're going to have to talk a few minutes. It's not my, my primary passage today, but it's to, to help you see the setting, the context of where we're at, is how do they get to that point? And it all happens in the preceding chapter in Exodus 14. And I'm going to summarize a lot of what's happening there so that you get the context of why, when we get to the other shore, why we have a million people or more raising their voices, singing at the top of their lungs. So let me see if I can help you recall what's going on. Through their leader Moses, God had uh, delivered the Hebrew saves from Pharaoh. He had directed them to go into the land that he had promised them. This was the land of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was the land that said was flowing with milk and honey. This is the land of Canaan. And if you remember that God is leading them there. He's leading them in the process. He's leading them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And so he doesn't take them, however, he is leading. He doesn't take them the very direct route that could be taken from Egypt uh, and taken over to Canaan. Why? Well, because uh, there would be many ways that would be an unsafe travel for them. There's all types of reasons why that would be a difficult spot. So instead, the Lord leads them effectively into a trap. He leads them into a space, a cul-de-sac, where where their back is up against the wall or up against the sea. The wilderness, the mountainous terrain, it's all impassable. And now the Egyptians have got them boxed in, in a closed-in area. They're in a tight space. But God led them there. So even before we can begin our text today, we have to get our mind around what's going on. That when we are weary and when we are in tight places, there's some lessons that we learn. When we're weary and we're in tight places, we're reminded about our actual character and our actual relationship with God. Not the the relationship that we want or the relationship that we are supposed to have or the relationship that we see in others and we wish that we had in ourselves, but the actual depth of the relationship and the character that we have uh, related to God. In chapter 14, they've got their backs against the wall. They start whining. They start complaining. They start murmuring. They start all of this. What a bunch of wimps, right? 
But we have to get in our mind. We have to understand. We have to be reminded. Before you start looking down on them, you have to realize, get your heads around the fact that your voice would be right in the middle of that crowd. You would be saying all of the same things that they would be saying. Particularly in our American culture, we are not used to being uncomfortable. And this is the environment that they are in. James McDonald illustrates the experience this way. Check this out. The sun beats down on your forehead and into your eyes, forcing you to squint as you scan the horizon in every direction for shelter. You're walking and walking, but you're not getting anywhere as you trudge endlessly over identical dunes of desperation. Your skin screams for shade as you feel the burning accelerate, and you know that you won't be able to last any longer. Then you see it off in the distance, a body of water, a reprieve from the relentless burning sun. You rush to the water's edge to cool off, only to hear the sound of enemies' chariots rumbling and their horses' hooves beating and pounding your hopes down, 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 into and under the swirling sand. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to run. This is the end of the line. So how do you respond? What do you do? What do you say? Well, here's what they said. They said this, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt. Uh, remember when you, when you took us out of Egypt, we wanted you to leave us alone, Moses? Why did you take us out of Egypt? At least there, we were under the servitude of the Egyptians. Now we're out here. We're going to die in the desert. And so this tight spot uh, made them uh, show and reveal their lack of faith. But immediately Moses responds. Immediately Moses speaks out. The one who said, I've never got anything to say. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. God, I, I cannot be that your spokesman. But God puts the words on his lips and on his tongue when it's necessary to do so. And he stands before them. He says this, stand still and see the salvation of God. The Lord will fight for you, but you just stand still. Isn't that great? In our weary moments, in our moments of worry and concern and our weakness in our tight places, we got to be reminded that our Lord God fights for us. You know what else? He, he does do this, but you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't work on our time schedule. He doesn't punch a time clock for you. <laughs> God works on his own schedule. We're his servants. He is not our servant. And when you get into a tight spot, we think, God, why don't you show up? Why don't you do th something? Right now would be the perfect time for you to respond. And God looks back at you and says, yeah, maybe. How about I handle when is the perfect time? How about I handle that part? Why? Because it's simple. God does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and uses whomever he wants. And you say, well, that's not fair. That's not very nice. I don't like that. It sounds like he's pretty mean. And he looks back at you and says, because I am the great I am. I am God. And therefore, I will do whatever I want, whenever I want, and with whomever I want. Why did he do this? Why did he move and why did he utilize Moses? Because he wanted to. Because he's God and he wanted to do that. And he wanted to make sure that the Hebrews got across the Red Sea. Make no mistake, it did occur. It did happen. God did do something miraculous that day because he wanted to. So we don't actually know where the specific and perfect uh, spot is. The exact, the exact geography for where this crossing happened. 
Uh, it's especially, especially true in this area because uh, there, because of the Nile and all of the, the flooding that occurs, the, the topography of the area actually changes even from year to year. It can be very different um, of that. But if you have a Bible with maps in the back of it, there's, there's a couple different options as to uh, what we may be looking at. And so you probably have a map of this region. I'm going to put up this morning the more traditional map. This is the, the map that shows the Gulf of Suez. And so uh, if you're all the way to the left, at the top of the map there, you'll see uh, Egypt. And so, and then at the top of the map to the right would be Canaan. And then coming up through the middle is the Red Sea. And there's kind of these two fingers that stick up to be able to show, that's the top uh, portion of the Red Sea, and they were going to get across uh, from Egypt all the way over to Canaan. And there's a, there's a few different options that they had there. The, the main option was the Philistine Highway, but they weren't going to take that. God was leading them away from that. Uh, there's the peninsula of uh, the Sinai Peninsula comes up right in between. And so if you look at the left side, the Gulf of Suez, there's actually about three or maybe four different spots that they think uh, potentially uh, they passed through there. They're, they're narrower areas, smaller areas, uh, one of them being the Bitter Lakes or Lake Timza. This is the more traditional uh, frame of thought where they may have come across there. This is the, the line that you see, and they come down towards uh, the uh, Sin Mount Sinai there in the middle and head back up. You can even see a red loop as they make that in the wilderness again. Uh, there's also those who are arguing in recent years that perhaps there's an alternative route for Exodus, which comes down to where is the location of Mount Sinai. And there's some who are now arguing that maybe that location of Mount Sinai is not on the Sinai Peninsula, but it's over on the Arabian Peninsula. So this next map uh, shows us that option. Uh, if you were going to cross the sea, maybe perhaps across the Gulf of Aquaba instead of the Gulf of Suez, that there would be a different crossing and that the, the mountain would be there and there would be uh, some different mapping that would have to happen with that to see Mount Sinai there in Arabia. And so if that were the case, there's two or three crossing places uh, that may work there as well uh, if they were going across. So you, what do you need to know about this? What do you need to understand about this? Here's the bottom line, is we are not absolutely certain. There's a lot of different variations as to where this crossing happened. Like I said, there's three, maybe four options on either Gulf, on the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aquaba. There's a few different options that are there. Uh, and, and then there's even another option that says, oh, uh, the, the critics would say, oh, this is actually not the Red Sea. It's the Sea of Reeds, which is a crossing uh, that is not actually uh, the Red Sea at all, but more of a, a river crossing or a creek crossing. And maybe the water was only two or three inches deep. Now, don't be fooled, friends. That's that's really not at all what's happening here. Why? Because we can look at this and see what God is showing us in Scripture. The enemy does die here in this crossing. And so we can surmise that it's perhaps about 10 feet of water uh, would be on the sides where they cross. That, that we can also surmise that the body of water had to be deep enough so that the entire Israelites uh, would go through, the Hebrews would get across this body of water through the night and then do so undetected. And so regardless of the four or five different options where the crossing uh, may be, we need to be reminded that <coughs> they get across, the Egyptians, the enemy, uh, are consumed, the water swallows them up, and when they come up on the shore on the other side, they come up out of the water singing and praising God for what he has done. And so what we get is Moses in Exodus 15, Moses' song of worship, this song of worship. So what do we learn 
about worship here? What do we learn by his song? What, what's important for us to take hold? There's some characteristics here that we're going to grab a hold of this morning. We're going to leave here this morning with a better understanding of what worship is because of how Moses leads us in worship this morning. What are those characteristics? I'm glad you asked. Let's get started. Worship is first a response. Worship is a response. Check this out. Beginning in verse 1, what's the first word that you see? The word is then Moses. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. You see, worship is a response. Everything that I just summarized for you in chapter 14 all happens. Then they respond with worship. They are blown away by what they have just experienced. This remarkable song is a spontaneous outpouring of something that is happening in, in abundance in the people when they see what God has done. They are finally free. They are finally away from the bondage that they had and the slavery that they had and the 400 years that they had served in Egypt, uh, of Egyptian oppression. They literally stood there and washed the bodies of their enemy, wash up on the seashore because their Lord had been victorious that day. To repeat, repeat that famous quote, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. This was the attitude that they had there as they stood on the shore. Why? Because when they're singing this song, the presence of God is real to them. It is tremendously real, tremendously uh, tangible to them. They sing this song because the provisions of God were tremendously real to them. They had no options. And God had provided a way. He had provided a tangible way. They had seen that, and their salvation was so real. Remember the whole time that they were in Egypt? They were not singing songs. They had no song that they could sing. They were sighing, not singing. They were groaning, and they were crying, crying out to the Lord because of their pain and their suffering, sighing, crying, and groaning for a deliverer to come. When the deliverer comes, it was their response here. This song that they are singing is in response to the deliverer who had come to take them out of this situation. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, in the New Testament, we get the same type of illustration when we get this. We love him because he first loved us. Worship is a response. Secondly, worship is focused. It is focused. Uh, verse 11 says this. Uh, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working in wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. Worship is focused. Worship is focused, and worship is all about Him. In these 18 or 19 verses that we read here this morning, as you go through it, you're going to see, and many of your translations have the words all capitalized, the word Lord is capitalized 12 times in these 18 verses. It's all about Him. And it's interesting because the deliverance across the Red Sea, the instrument that God uses is Moses. And so when he uses Moses there, we read about it. We read that Moses is the representative of the Lord. God says, Moses, stretch out your hands. Stretch out your rod over the sea. So Moses participated in what God was doing. But in this song, he is not mentioned, not even once. Well, that makes sense because worship is 
focus. True worship is focused, and it is God-centered, not man-centered. See, Moses is the instrument here that God uses. And when God uses the instrument, you don't praise the instrument. You you praise the creator, the Lord who gave us this instrument. He could have used any instrument, but he chooses to use Moses in this example. The source is God. God does what he wants, whenever he wants, with whomever he wants. Now, this is a poem, so you're getting to see some different literary devices uh, being utilized here. Uh, one that we, uh, if you remember back in the English class, that we're all sim- uh, uh, accustomed to seeing, and that is a simile, where you use the words like or as. Check this out, what we see here. We see that they sank to the bottom like a stone, or the water stood up like a heap, or the enemy sunk down like lead. Your right hand, O Lord, the metaphor begins here, the right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy into pieces. You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. All of these different word pictures that are being created here for us to see. Now, why does the Bible uh, talk about God's right hand? Well, the right hand typically is the arm of strength and the arm of power. Now, in a room of this size, maybe there's a left-handed person in this room. Uh, We're not mad at you. We're not upset with you. God's not mad at you. Uh, The reality is just most of us, our right hand is their hand of power. So to speak of the right hand of the Lord is to speak of his dominance and his, his power, his strong hand and the might of the Lord. We read in the New Testament when they're fighting, James and John are fighting over who will get to sit by what? The right hand of the Father. And Jesus responds, he said, that is not your seat at all. That is my seat because I am going to be sitting at the right hand of God. You see, true worship is focused. Focused on the power, the might, the glory, the omniscience of God. You see, God doesn't want any competition. We get this in the Ten Commandments. There are no other idols to be placed before me. There's no other competition because all gods, all goddesses, all that you could put in front of him are false. They're fake. They're not real. They're made by humans. They're made by men and women who are trying to place something before God, and it's rightfully and totally his. True worship is focused on God. Here in this passage, you see the enemies. Uh, Not only the enemies of Egypt who have now been buried in the ocean, whose bodies are washing up on shore, but now the enemies that are surrounding, the enemies in Canaan, uh, that they would all be looking and be terrified by what? The power and might of the right hand of God. Because true worship fears God. True worship is focused on and fears God. Here's how Spurgeon comments on it. Check this out. Moses saw men dying all around him. During his lifetime and in the desert there, he lived among funerals. He was overwhelmed at the terrible results of the divine displeasure on men. He felt that no one could measure the might of the Lord's wrath. He wrote in Psalm 90, chapter 11, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Good men dread. And bad men are often terrified. But horror that they see is not greater than it would need to be, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Holy Scripture, when it depicts God's wrath against sin, never uses an ounce of hyperbole. It would be so impossible to exaggerate it. 
Whatever feelings of pious awe or holy trembling may move a tender heart, it is never moved by too much. Be it ours to submit ourselves as dying, worthless sinners to this eternal God who can, even at this very moment, command us into dust. We worship with focus. We worship with fear. So, so no, when you look at this passage, we, we don't worship Moses. How foolish would that be? In the New Testament, uh, the, the beginning of the New Testament opens up and we're introduced to Joseph the carpenter and he has an angel come to him and he falls down. What does the angel tell him? He says, do not worship me. I am not the Lord. We need to tell our friends to be able to say, uh, in, in modern day, to say, don't worship Mary. She is not the Lord. Don't worship the apostles. They are not the Lord. Don't worship your favorite theologian. He is, she is not the Lord. Don't worship a pastor. He is not the Lord. No, we worship. Our only worship is to be focused on the one true God. Worship is a response, and worship is to be focused. Thirdly, worship is relational. Worship is relational. Verse 13, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Worship is relational. We talked two weeks ago about how John the Baptist, when he baptizes Jesus, that all three components of the Trinity are present. The Father speaking, the Son being baptized, and the Holy Spirit ascending like a dove. All three present because God himself is in relationship. In the first chapter of John, we find that Jesus uh, is the Son of God or the Word who has moved into our neighborhoods and made himself available to us. And here we read that in your strength, you will guide them into your holy dwelling. God himself dwells with us because worship is relational. Worship is a relationship. So let's define the reality, the truth of what this relationship is. God is the redeemer, it teaches here. And the people that he buys back, that's what the word redemption actually means, are the redeemed. So if he is the Lord, then these people, or you and I as well, are his servants. So, so the true relationship or true worship is this relationship that is formed. Lord, servant, redeemer, redeemed. That's what relationship with a holy God really looks like. So if you have accepted Christ into your life, if you have a personal relationship with our Lord and Savior, you need to understand that you have given him the ownership. You have signed over the title of the vehicle, which is your life, to him. He is now the owner. So you cannot put a bumper sticker on the back of your car that says, God is my co-pilot. No, he is the owner. He is the driver. It's all his, and you are his. And in fact, you're saying, drive, God, wherever you are going to drive. Uh, I'll watch. Jesus, take the wheel. It's all yours. I'll be part of it, but you drive. You own me. You are the boss. You are in charge. Worship is relational. And finally, worship is eternal. Worship is eternal. Verse 18 says it loud and clear. The Lord reigns forever and ever. The Lord reigns forever and ever. Worship is eternal. Now, this morning, you're here this morning, you're in the room, you're, you're watching at home. Some of you are not great singers. 
Uh, your spouse knows that you are not a great singer. You know that your husband is awful. Uh, husbands, you know that your wife is a terrible singer, but you'd never say it because you know that would be a dangerous thing for you to do. But the reality is, even socially distanced, even six feet away from around you, the people all around you, they already know you're a terrible singer. Why is it important for us this morning? Because worship is eternal. We need some practice, friends. Uh, we need to be able to kind of think through this. So we're, we're going to be worshiping our eternal Lord and Savior forever and ever. I get to lead worship here about every six weeks or so or something like that. And it's one of the things I like to do when I lead worship is just to remind us of this, uh, encourage us of this. I'll say something like this. We're not looking for beautiful singing here this morning. We're not looking for wonderful harmonies. We're looking for loud, obnoxious, gut-wrenching, ear-popping, vein-straining, uh, loud spit-in-your-mask, of course, worship where you're just yelling out and praising and glorifying God and lifting up your voice and lifting your hands before God. Why? Because, friends, we need to build up some endurance. <laughs> we need to build up some strength because this is what we will be doing for all of eternity, lifting our voices and praising and worshiping and glorifying God. Don't believe me? Right now we are in Exodus chapter 15. We are on the shores of the Red Sea. Grab most of your Bible, flip it over to Revelation chapter 15, and we are on the shores of the Sea of Glass. And check out the song that's being sung here. Revelation chapter 15, beginning in verse 3. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Check this out. This is a paraphrase of the same song we're just looking at. Great and marvelous are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O the King of the nations. Who will not fear you, God, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. See, the song of Moses, it's the first song that's recorded in all of Scripture. It's the first one being introduced to the canon. It's the number one song in the Israel's top 40 charts, right? It's, it's the number one. It's, it's good so much so that Miriam, in just a few verses, she's going she's gonna to choreograph a dance routine, and that's the number one dance routine to go with the number one song. It's an exciting thing. This song is spectacular, so successful that this humble servant of God this earthly man, his song is being sung in glory by angels. What a beautiful moment it is. Why? Because this song puts worship and puts God in his proper place. What's the chief end of man? It's to bring glory to God. That's it. That's the end. That is all that we are supposed to do because worship is eternal. Now, does that mean that there's going to be smooth sailing from here on out? You put those things in order, and it's going to be easy going from here on, smooth sailing. No. It's only going to take three days in the desert. Three days after this moment that Israel is walking out into the desert a little bit farther, that he's driving the family vehicle out into the desert, and it all messes up. Everything comes apart. They become weary, worn down. But even we see this in the New Testament. We see it with Jesus himself. He's been baptized. And we're going to look at this next week. And where does he go? He is taken out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. There will be wilderness, friends. There will be weariness. There will be wilderness. But the Lord will reign forever and ever. Let me say that again. There will be weariness. There will be wilderness. But the Lord reigns forever and ever. As the band comes up, let me share one more story with you this morning. 
I'm going to fast forward from this moment in Exodus at the Red Sea. I'm going to fast forward all the way to 1984. 1984. No, this was not the year that I was born, although I was toddling around. I was pretty young. I was moving around 1984. Uh, No, I'm not talking about uh, the year that the Macintosh computer was born, although that is what happened in 1984. The the, uh, commercial, the kind of iconic commercial that Steve Jobs put out uh, during the Super Bowl is actually called 1984. But I'm talking about in 1984, uh, the beautiful vehicle that was released for the first time, the Plymouth Voyager or the Dodge Caravan. The minivan was born in 1984. And the minivan had come and all the nicknames for the shaggin' wagon and all the other names that we have, the woody wagon, all those type of things for the station wagon, this was going to be marketed as the magic wagon because it was going to take the place of the station wagon. And we had one. My family had one. We didn't have it in 1984. We had it a few years later. We didn't have the really cool wood panels on the sides. Ours was like a maroon red or like lipstick red. It was really weird, but it was our our minivan. And our minivan had a feature that that no minivan, no person in their right mind today would have this feature uh, in the minivan. In the day where there's DVD players and, and easy chairs and leather seats and cup holders for sippy cups and for every type of cup you ever imagined, all in our minivans today. This minivan had a spectacular feature that we would never see today. Uh, the feature was for the driver. It was just below the driver's uh, console. There, there's the pedals that are on the floor. There was right next to the brake pedal, there was another pedal. There were three pedals there on the floor and there was a a stick shift that went down into the floor because our minivan was a manual transmission minivan. You would never see this today. And that manual transmission minivan drove my mother crazy. So when we cruised around in this vehicle, there was a number of times on our, we were late to school that, that mom would stall the van out in the middle of an intersection and try to get it going again. Or there was times that we'd be in front of the school and so as not to stall the minivan out, she'd pop the clutch so the wheels would squeal and all of us kids would duck down so that no one would see us, the goofy family in that red minivan. My dad had all kinds of trouble with the van as well. Uh, there was a particular trip that we had uh, from our home uh, to our aunt and uncle down in Tennessee where my cousins lived. And, and it's a 13, 14 hour drive and about uh, eight or nine hours in we got into a traffic jam, a really bad traffic jam. It just went on for hours and hours. And this minivan, a stick shift minivan, just, just running that clutch over and over and over again. And, and my dad had, uh, a couple years previously, had had a, a knee surgery. And so the more that he pumped that clutch, the more that his knee stopped working. And he was just really frustrated in this thing. And to the end of the, the trip, when we got to Tennessee, I vividly remember that, that he had to put the vehicle up on blocks during his vacation, the time that he never got off from the family farm. Uh, he had to put the vehicle up on, on blocks and change out because he had burned out the clutch clutch. It was gone. It was shot. He had to put a whole new clutch uh, in the van there. Uh, In addition, my sister, who was six years younger than me, uh, just a little toddler herself at that point, uh, she ended up putting her head through the railing uh, of the house and got stuck there. But that's another story for another day. Uh, Don't worry. Uh, She's not still there. I mean, we, we did get her out. Uh, but it was, it was one of those things. It's just this really stressful and wearisome and worrisome trip. Where they live in Tennessee, uh, we took this van, and it was like the van just had to climb up and went around and around and around to get to the top of this mountain. It's in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Lookout Mountain. 
And it's a spot where it's a unique location where uh, one of the only spots that you can at the top of this mountain on a sunny day, a clear sky with binoculars, you can actually see seven states from one spot there at the top of the mountain. And our weary minivan made it to the top of that mountain and got to the parking lot and our weary family kind of fell out of the car and got there. But I will never forget the feeling that I had of just walking out to the lookout and just the awe that was there, the beauty that we saw. It just seemed like the earth, I could see the entire earth from this spot. I was mesmerized by the glory of what God had created. And you know what's kind of neat about that spot? That spot is actually called, the specific spot, it's called Rock City there at Lookout Mountain. And all over the southeast, if you've ever seen it, there's old red barns that are painted on the side of the barn. They say, come see Rock City. Uh, the, 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 the bringing as many people as you can to come and see this spot. It's a, it's a pretty unique spot. It was a spot uh, that was necessary during the Civil War. That's just this high point to be able to see that. It was uh, the Cherokee Indians fought for that spot for a number of years. But when we were there, uh, the, all the attention that was brought back to that spot, wouldn't that be just the same uh, the analogy then uh, of what it looks like for you and I to be able to tell everybody, come and see our Savior, the rock of ages, the, the solid rock, Jesus Christ, because from there you get to see all of the glory of God. If I go back to 17, you read, you will bring them in, you will plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place that the Lord, you have made your dwelling your sanctuary. Lord, your hands have established it. The Lord reigns here forever and ever. So if you're coming in here this morning, you're weary, you're worn down, and it's expected. There's all types of things going on that are dividing us, pulling us apart, and you're worn down, and you're just like the Israelites in the desert. How on earth can I worship God in the middle of this? Let this text remind us of who God is compared to who we are. We trade our weariness for worship because He is in control of all things. He is the authority over all things. Jesus tells His disciples in John chapter 16, He says, I have told you these things. He had gone on to great detail to tell them about the suffering that they would go through. He told them in great detail about he, how He would have to suffer and what their lives would look like. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. I am the solid rock. On which you stand. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. There will be weariness, there will be wilderness, but the Lord reigns forever and ever. So, Lord, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this song that Moses wrote there on the banks of the sea. Lord, we pray that this morning we would come with a response to what you have done this week. Uh, Lord, knowing that you are in control, you are omniscient. Uh, Lord, you are in all power of all things. And even if we don't like it, we don't, we don't like the situation that we're in, we still know that you're in control. And so we respond to you in worship. Let us focus on you. Let us sing and praise and worship to an audience of one here today. Lord, teach us how to keep things in their proper place. We worship you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.